Good morning. My name is Shirley. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July the 29th, 1982. And I brought my driver with me this weekend, my husband, Bo. He drove me to drinking. He drove me to treatment. And he drove me here to Paducah this weekend. Just raise your hand. You don't have to stand up. <laughs> He's also my best friend. That's neat. Being married to your best friend. I couldn't say that 17 years ago, but I can today. The big book says I shared with you what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today. And I'd much rather stand up here and tell you what Shirley's like right now, because today's good. Today's good. Uh, and there have been a lot of good days. But I guess I need to tell you about some of the crap <laughs> along the way. <laughs> um, I am from the Bessemer Group in Bessemer, Alabama. One of the two best groups on the face of the earth. My wish for you this morning would be that your home group is the other one. I have been a member of that group ever since I walked through the door. September the 4th, 1982. And I member in good standing. I'm the oldest of three children. I have a brother that's four years younger than I am and he's normal. We don't know what that means. Um, David doesn't smoke, David doesn't drink, he doesn't cuss. He's lived in the same house forever, and he's had the same job since he got out of school. I don't know what he does for fun. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> oh, I'm going to lose my sister Gail, and she's eight years younger than I am in Tennessee right now working on her story. Working on her story. God bless her. You know, it would be neat to go in these conferences this week, one weekend and run into Gail. Just run into Gail. You never know. Miracles do happen, don't they? Uh, when I was 13 years old, my parents signed the divorce papers. I was 13 years old. And I remember thinking, I don't have to worry about my daddy coming home or not coming home. I don't have to worry about uh, never having any money like we went through. And my mother came to me and my brother and sister and said, pack up all your stuff. We're moving in with your grandparents. It tickled me to death. I was the oldest grandchild, and I was spoiled rotten. And please believe me that every one of my grandchildren will be spoiled rotten. <laughs> All of them. And it just tickled me to death because I thought, man, this is going to be great, living with Granny and Granddaddy all the time. Because they didn't know what the word no was. And uh, So we moved in with Grandmother and Granddaddy, and that summer I turned 14. And, oh, it was going to be good. It was going to be good. I started to high school the next month in September and was in, living in a different neighborhood, had a whole set of friends, didn't have to worry about my dad coming home or not coming home, and I was going to be okay. Uh, you know, I can remember so many times my grandmother taking me and sharing things with me, and I wondered why my mother never did that. And you know, she just didn't have the time. My mother just never had the time. And I can remember thinking, I'm going to be okay because my granny will make sure that Shirley learns the things that she needs to learn. Well, the first Christmas at this grandparent's house when I was 14 was the very best Christmas I'd ever had in my life. I can remember looking at my mom and thinking, she's not crying today. She's not crying. And I can remember opening presents all day long. All day long. My grandmother would come through the room and she'd say, oh, I, I found a few more presents. And I'd think, where did she get them? You know, but we just opened presents all day long. And right after Christmas in January, I remember the ambulance coming to the house. It was a cold day in January, and, and I remember them loading my grandmother up in this ambulance and taking her to the hospital, and she never came back home. 
And she died at the age of 50. And I thought, God, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? Who's going to take care of me? I knew why my daddy was no longer here, but why did they have to take my granny? Shortly after that, my granddaddy sat my mom down at the dining room table and said, Louise, if you're going to live here in my home, honey, with these three children, you need to get a job. <laughs> if my grandmother had not died, my, my mother never would have gone to work. <laughs> and so my mother's answer to that was, well, Dad, if I've got to get a job, we'll just move out. You know, we'll just move out. And we did. We moved all the way across town and moved into a little two-bedroom apartment. And my mom found a job. And uh, the job she found uh, was working 3 till 11. And you know what that meant. My mom and I switched roles. And you know it was okay. It was okay. I can remember hitting that 305 school, bell, I mean, school bus in the afternoons to get home because I knew David and Gail needed dinner, blue jeans washed, and homework done. And, of course, when my mom came in from work every night, we were in bed asleep. When we got up to go to school the next morning, she was in bed asleep. So the only time we ever saw each other was on weekends. And dating was not ever an issue. I know that we girls sat at that lunch table and we talked about you good-looking hunks. And, yes, there was such a word way back then as hunk. <laughs> and, uh, but I'd never had a date, never been out on a date. And she had never been to pep rallies or football games on Friday nights, and I guess that's where I could have met somebody, but just didn't get that chance to do that. So one day a girlfriend said, Shirley, would your mom let you go on a double date with me on Saturday night? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll ask her. And I thought, well, my mother doesn't work on Saturday night. That's, that's, that's going for me, you know. So I went to my mom and I said, can I go out on a double date with Margaret on Saturday night? And uh my mom's answer was, Shirley, nothing ever happens on a blind date. And today in my life, he's my driver. Tell me nothing happens on a blind date. <laughs> and so uh, we went out on this blind date, and before I left, my mom said to me, Now, Shirley, when he walks you to the door, do not kiss him goodnight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why not? I mean, you know, just a little kiss. And, uh, and she said, well, good girls don't do that. And then she also said, you need to be home at 10 o'clock. And I realized today that no wonder no one ever got in trouble back then. You never had time. And, um, and so uh, we went skating. We went roller skating that night. And sometime during the night, Bo asked me for my telephone number. And it just tickled me to death because when, when I was walked to the door, I knew I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to kiss him goodnight. But he already had my phone number. So uh, when I walked in, my mom said, well, did you let him kiss you goodnight? And I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. You said not to. Well, he probably won't call you back anyway. <laughs> I love encouragement. You know, just go for it. You know, it took a drink to get me to really take action. And, uh, and so the next afternoon was Sunday, and Bo called me. And uh, he asked me for a date that night. And he picked me up, and when he opened the car door, and I slid in across that front seat, and he went around and got in on his side and closed the door, he put his arm around me, and he kissed me. And he's been kissing me ever since. And this past April the 30th, we celebrated 35 years of marriage. Now, thank you. I don't remember all those 35 years, but he does. Every single one of them. And, and we dated for five years. So I got a lot of time and effort invested in this little fellow over here, you know, a lot. I've been, I've been married longer to him. Golly, I'm 55 years old. I've been married longer to him over half of my life. 
That's not a bad way to live, is it? With your best friend. But we dated for these five years, and, and during these five years, his parents divorced him, and here we were, two young kids madly in love, because I fell in love with him the first time I laid eyes on him. The very first time I laid eyes on him. And uh, when he put that ring on my finger, the first thing that dawned on me was I need to call my daddy. Because I thought the way you got married was to walk down the aisle on the arm of your dad. And you know, I hadn't seen this dad of mine since I was 13 years old when the divorce papers were signed. My dad was not the kind of man who believed in alimony, child support, birthday presents, Christmas presents. Christmas presents. Never got a Christmas present. Never got a birthday present from my dad. But I thought that my marriage would take if I let him walk me down the aisle. So I made my first mistake when I called him at night. <laughs> and I pulled down this big Birmingham directory, telephone directory, and I looked up his name, and there he was. Picked up the phone, and I called him. I said, Dad, this is Shirley. You remember Shirley? <laughs> oh, sure I do. And I said, I'm getting married on April the 30th. Will you come and give me away? Why, sure I will. With that slur about him. And he said, you tell me what time the wedding is and where the church is and what I wear. I'll be there. And you know that sounded familiar. I'll be there. How many times had he told me and my brother and sister on Friday morning, I'll be home early today and we'll all go do something. I'll be home early today and we'll have a good weekend. How many times had I heard that promise? And it never happened. But see, this was different. This was a fun deal. This was my wedding day. My daddy would not, not show up on my wedding day. So we get to the church, and it's on a Thursday night, and the wedding's to be at 7.30, and it's 7.15, and everyone's seated, and the lights are all, the candles are all lit, and the music's playing softly, and it's time for a wedding. Bo and the best man and preacher are waiting to come out front, down, down in the front of the auditorium, and, and here I am at the back, ready to walk down the aisle, and there's no daddy. And I'm thinking, he promised me. He promised. And about this time, a couple of guys walked outside on the outside steps to smoke a cigarette. And I heard one of the guys say, well, buddy, just pull right up on the sidewalk. That'll be fine. And I said, he's here. <laughs> hey, I don't care how he gets there. Just get your little happy self in here and get this wedding going. And, and uh, it was my daddy in all of his glory. He walks through the big double doors at the back of the church. And he, he's got that natural glow about him. One more time. He's got those red eyes that have re replaced those pretty brown eyes. And he takes one look at me. He takes one look at my mom and he walks out. And I'm thinking, he promised. God, he promised this time. Why can't he not take a drink on my wedding day? Well, my daddy gets in his car and pulls it off the sidewalk. And my brother David walks over and says, come on, Shirley, pull your veil down over your face. I'll walk you down the aisle. I've been trying to get rid of you for years. And... To this day, David thinks he's the reason Bo and I have stayed together. And we just let him. It's just not worth trying to argue with a normal person. You know what I mean? Normal person. And so Bo and I left the church that night. And the first thing I said when we got in the car was, there'll be no drinking in our house. And Bo said, sure. Because see, he didn't come from the broken alcoholic home. He'd never been around drinking. So he just agreed with me, and we start on this little thing called the Great American Dream. Now, we didn't know much about life, didn't know anything about life. All we knew was that we loved each other and we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. And that success, successful people were, were uh, looked on by the kind of stuff they had. 
you were successful by the amount of stuff that you had. So we wanted to accumulate a lot of stuff. And we were real good at it. The first year we were married, we had enough money saved for the down payment on that first little home in Hueytown with three bedrooms and one bath and a great big backyard fenced in for kids. And we moved into this little home on our first wedding anniversary. And we were just tickled to death. We just couldn't wait for all the action to start. <laughs> we couldn't wait for the kids. And our second wedding anniversary, we're in this little cute little house and no children. But we were trying. We really were trying. And no children. And uh, our third wedding anniversary, Bo pulled in the driveway with me a little two-door red Thunderbird as my anniversary present. And I thought that was the sharpest little car on the road. It didn't hold a lot of groceries. But, boy, it was a cute little car. I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go to work. I couldn't wait to go to work. I just loved driving that little car. And one afternoon on the way home from work, a man hit me. I was in his blind spot. and really didn't do a lot of damage. just kind of scraped it down the left side. And I remember back then my ears were not pierced, and I had on clip-on earrings, and it just kind of knocked one of the earrings off the off of my ear in the floorboard. But that's the only damage that it did. And we call the police, and I get home, and Bo's watching TV, and I go inside and said, I have had a wreck. And he comes out and looks and says, where is it? You know, it's just that, that minor. And he said, well, but I want you to go to the doctor and get checked over. And I said, but I'm not hurt. I mean, there was nothing. I wasn't bothered. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't injured. And he said, well, I know, but you don't want to have a whiplash later on down the road or something happened to your back. So... Go and get a checkup. So I said, okay. Now, you must remember this is 32 years ago, a little over 32 years ago. And and uh, you go, you don't make appointments for doctors. You go and sit. <laughs> so I go, and I sit and wait my turn. And they check me over from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And the doctor says to me, Shirley, go in my office and have a seat. I'll be in in just a moment, and we'll talk. And I'm thinking, about what? I'm fine. You, you've evidently not found anything wrong with me. I feel great. In fact, I feel better than I have in months. But I go on into his office and I sit down. And a few minutes later, he comes in and instead of going over across from me and sitting down at his desk, he pulls up a chair right beside me. And he taps me on the knee and he says, Shirley, you're two months pregnant. I said, from the wreck? <laughs> And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I can't tell Bo. Okay. So he says, get him on the phone. So I get Bo on the phone, and I hand the phone immediately to this doctor. And the doctor says, Bo, I've checked Shirley over, and the only thing I find wrong is she's two months pregnant. And Bo said, from the wreck? <laughs> and that little wreck's name was Mike. Oh, what a joy. Uh, born November the 10th of that year, the sunshine of my life. A little blonde-headed, blue-eyed hunk. Named Mike. I ain't ever met a Mike I didn't love. Then I had another wreck, and her name's Sissy. <laughs> she's brown-headed and brown-eyed. And right now, right now, she's at an Almond conference in Louisiana sharing her experience, strength, and hope because she lived in a disease, a disease called alcoholism. But Sissy is my very best girlfriend. She is my very best girlfriend. That's one of the pluses that this program has given me. One of the many pluses. Well, Bo and I took a little inventory. We decided we had one boy and one girl. That's all the variety they had. So we didn't have any more. And in order to live the great American dream, you need two paychecks. So after, of course, I had Mike and immediately got pregnant with Sissy. 
17 months apart to the day. So I didn't go back to work. And, and we took this inventory and decided, Shirley, you need to go back to work to keep up with the house and the two cars and, and now the two children. So I told Bo that I would look for a babysitter first, and then I would look for a job. So I found a babysitter, and what I came across was far more than I ever bargained for. I found a lady who was available 24 hours a day. I found a lady who would take my children into her home and love them. And if it was pouring down rain in the afternoon, she would call me and say, let them spend the night. There's no need in getting these kids out in this bad weather. She always kept extra clothing for them at her house. Or she would call me and say, why don't you and Bo take a weekend off? Said, you two need to, you've worked all week and, and the kids have been a full handful. And, and why don't you just go off for Friday night and Saturday night and I'll keep Mike and Sissy for you. She was always there. She was right in place when the disease of alcoholism reared its ugly head in our home. Thank God for Mama Betty. I still see things today in Sissy that Mama Betty taught her. And today, Cece will still talk about Mama Betty. That's awesome. But I found this job, and I went to work. And at lunch one day, a, a girl said, You know, we need another member of, a, of our sorority. You'd be great. Man, we need one more girl. And I joined it. I thought, Well, you know, I didn't get to do stuff like that in school. Now's my chance. And I was initiated that summer. And then later on that summer, one of the girls who had a lake home on the Warrior River right outside of Hueytown had a dance on Saturday night and of course there was Mama Betty who took care of the children all day Saturday all day Sunday and Bo and I cart off to this little party down the Warrior River and they've got candles and lanterns all out in the yard and and the moon's reflecting off that Warrior River and they have a live band and all of us adults are just running around having a good time and my husband walked up to me with a Tom Collins and he said to me honey drink this it was the first drink of alcohol I was to ever have in my hand, much less in my mouth. Now, I'm an alcoholic who, who remembers her last drunk. And I want to tell you about my first drink. It was in a real tall glass. It had just a tiny shade of pink to it. It had straw. It had, a, it had a toothpick across the top of that glass. And on that toothpick, it had a maraschino cherry with a stem. <laughs> a slice of orange, and a hunk of pineapple. And unbeknown to me, somewhere in that glass was a little umbrella. Well, that's what it seemed like to me, because you see, when I drank that drink, I just, I just changed. <laughs> I just loved it. I really did. I think I drank another one that night. And I remember my toes tingling, and my fingernails tingling, and my hair tingling, and, you know, I loved it. I really did. Um, I remember the meetings that we had for this sorority started out with a drink. You know where we open our AA meetings with a serenity prayer? Well, we opened up with a drink, and then we closed with a drink. And, and I got to where I looked forward to these meetings more than I looked forward to going to work. And uh, so I uh, had a little talk with Bo one particular night, and he said, I think you need to get out of that sorority. He said, uh, I just I think that would be a, a good move. And you know I did. It was no problem. I said to him, I can do that. And so I resigned from that sorority. But let me tell you what I did. I started keeping something there at the house. Now, I am an alcoholic who's never been in jail. I've never had a DUI. I've never gotten up in the morning in the bed with someone I didn't know. I didn't run around. But let me tell you what I did. I did a lot of damage in my home on 28th Avenue in Hueytown. I did as much damage there as any lady who's walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous.
I just did mine differently. I took these two children of mine and I took away their personalities. I took away their pride. I took away everything they ever stood for. Because, you see, I told them if they were better in school, Mom wouldn't drink. I took away everything that they ever wanted to be in life when I was drinking. And you see, there are some scars that will never go away. Never go away. Let me tell you what I did. I got off work at 4.30, and when I got home, I started drinking. and, And for an awfully long time, the booze worked. Because I could be super bomb, super wife, super career girl, super team mother, super PTA lady, all rolled up into one. And I could get home, and I could wash clothes, and I could start dinner, and I could clean the house. And by the time I got ready to go to bed, everything was in ship shape. But then the booze started turning on me. And I would get home, and I would start drinking. And let me tell you what I drank. I drank wine. All of you guys who drink wine are winos. I am a winette. And that sounds a lot nicer than a wino. And let me tell you what I drank. I drank Boone's Farm Tickle Pink. And don't you laugh because it did the trick. It did the trick. And what I would do is I would come home and pour that Boone's Farm Tickle Pink into a wine decanter and put it on the left side of my refrigerator. And I would fix Mike and Sissy's strawberry Kool-Aid, and I'd put it in a white Tupperware pitcher on the other side of the refrigerator. And I was real quick to tell them, this is your Kool-Aid, this is Mom's. Now, we don't mix them up. My daughter is 30 years old. She has two stepchildren. And she will not fix Kool-Aid for those two kids because she cannot stand the thought of mixing it up. And that's the tiniest scar that my drinking put on that little girl. My daughter's left-handed. And I can't tell you how many times after I would pass out at night, Sissy would take the clothes out of the dryer and fold them and put them in the linen closet. Sissy would load the dishwasher for me and clean up the kitchen just like no one had been there. And I would get up sometime in the middle of the night to go get another drink. And I would open the linen closet and pull everything out of that linen closet that she had folded because it wasn't folded the way I wanted it folded. And I would go wake her up and say, you fold them the way I want them folded. And then I would go to the kitchen and I would open the dishwasher and everything loaded in there would be opposite from the way I wanted it loaded. And I would tell her, if you can't load this thing right, don't do it. Mike had a motorcycle. Mike had a motorcycle. And thank God, I think that got him out a lot of the stuff that went on in that house at night. And his curfew was 10 o'clock. He was always there, but his mother was always passed out by the time he pulled in the driveway. But you know what I, what I would do when he would leave in the afternoons as he was pulling out of that driveway? I'd say, God, please watch after Mike. And please don't let a drunk driver hit him. Because you see, I would have been in no shape to get my car keys and get in my car and go find him. I remember getting up one morning and looking in the mirror and... Uh, And you know what I had? I had that natural glow that my daddy had on April 30th, 1964. And I didn't want it. I had the the red eyes in place of the pretty brown eyes that my daddy had given me, and I didn't want them. And I looked into this mirror and prayed to, I thought, a God that loved me. And I said, you know, God, I can't remember the last time Bo put his arms around me and said, I love you, Shirley. And you know, God, I don't know the last time Mike looked at me and said, Mom, you smell so good today. 
You know, God, I can't remember the last time Sissy gave me a compliment for something I did for her. And I blinked. And when I blinked, I looked back in this mirror and this voice said, Hey, Shirley. Hey, Shirley, how about the last time you put your arms around Bo and you told him you loved him? Hey, Shirley, when was the last time you put your arms around Mike and you told him he smelled good? Shirley, how about that time you gave Sissy a compliment for something that she did for you? And I looked in this mirror and I said, I don't want to be an alcoholic. I do not want to be like my daddy. And I wasn't like my daddy. I've never been like my daddy. But I just couldn't quit drinking. Just couldn't quit drinking once I started. And I didn't want to be that kind of a mother. And I didn't want to be that kind of a wife. I just wanted to live a good life and be around the ones I loved. That's all I wanted to do. And I can remember Bo and the kids never asking me to go with him anymore at night. Because you see, they never knew what kind of deal they were going to be dished out. And so they would never invite me to go to ball games with them anymore because I always embarrassed them. And there was this night in July of 1982, and Mike's 15, and Sissy's 13, and, and I've just stripped them of everything they've ever wanted out of life. They don't smile anymore. They don't have personalities anymore. They don't have friends that come over to the house anymore. I don't allow them to go to their friend's house because, you see, I didn't want them to find out that we weren't living the great American dream. And in July of 1982, they're going to another ball game, and Cece and Bo were already in the car. And Mike headed for the front door, but he had forgotten something in his bedroom. And he went back to his bedroom and came back. And as he started out the front door, I'm standing there with a glass of wine. And he looked at me and he said, Mom, when we get home tonight, will you be passed out on the floor or passed out in bed? And with the wine in this hand, I raised my hand, my right hand, to slap him. I dare I dare him stand there and say something like that to me, his mother. And just as my hand got up about right here to slap him, I thought of the last time my daddy beat me with a belt buckle into the belt. And when he caught me and he started beating me, I said, Dad, if I ever have children, if I ever, ever have children, I will never lay a hand on them. And at this point in my life, I had raised my hand to slap my son for something that he just made a remark about. And I felt like it had something to do with the booze. Well, Mike didn't wait for an answer. He just went and got in the car. And, uh, and just as I started to close the door to go back and get another drink, because, you see, I needed something then, my son had just humiliated me. There was a telephone number that came across the screen on the TV that was not on. And I dialed the number. And it was at a treatment center, and it was after hours, so it rang down in the nurse's station, and this lady named Marion answered, God bless Marion. I don't know what in the world I'd ever done if it had been somebody else at that phone other than Marion. But she said to me, yes, ma'am, can I help you? And I said, yes, ma'am, I have a girlfriend with a drinking problem. <laughs> you know, hey, I, I used every excuse I could. I, you know, I'd still be out there if I had any more excuses. Um, but anyway, I talked to this lady on the phone for over an hour, and uh, 
I remember giving her my Sears charge card number. Sissy said, what did you think you were going to do? Start charging on Sears, revolving charge, and pay for it monthly? I don't know what I was going to do. I just was doing the best I could do at that time. And, and of course, I talk to her, and I tell her that I want to come up. I understand that she has a 28-day program and that this is far off in the woods, and it's 40 miles away from Birmingham, so no, I'm past Birmingham, so nobody would know I was there. And that I wanted to come up that night while the kids and Bo were gone to a ball game. And then I'd wait 28 days and get fixed and then drive my car and come on back home. I, that's what I told her. And she said, Charlie, I think you need to wait till in the morning to come because we have snakes that come out at night and cover the roads. We don't want you walking from the area where you would have to park your car to the lodge and, and maybe see one of those snakes. So I didn't go that night. And... And I was up when they came in from the ball game that night. And you know, this was so this was so typical. I mean, you know, I'd never been awake when they came in before. So I'm sitting, I'm standing there, and, and uh, Cece walks in, and she said, Mom, you're up. And I said, Cece, I've called the treatment center. And she said, Yes, ma'am. Never been disrespectful a day in her life. And then Bo comes through, and he says, Uh, Oh, you're up. And I said, well, I've called a treatment center, Bo. I've just got to have some help. I never told him for a long time what Mike had said to me. And he looked at me and he said, this is number 1,382. What's different? But then Mike came in, little Mike. And he said, Mom, you're still up. And I said, Mike, I've called a treatment center. And I'm going to go do something about my drinking. And he said, yes, ma'am. And he went to his bedroom. And I remember him closing the door and turning the lock because, you see, he didn't want me in his room anymore. And it was just like an ice pick. I couldn't stand that lock every time he locked that door. Well, we went, all went to bed, and the next morning I get up and go to work. Bo gets up and goes to work. It's summertime. The kids are out of school. And uh, about 10 o'clock, the phone on my desk rings, and it's Bo. And he's crying. He said, you really did call a treatment center, didn't you? And I said, I've got to have some help. I am 38 years old, and I don't want to live anymore. I have nothing to live for. I've lost the love and respect of those I love the most, and I just don't want to be around anymore. And you know, the last time I talked to him on the phone was Valentine's Day when I called him and I said, well, I got my three roses from you Mike and Sissy. But everybody in the office got a dozen. If you can't send a dozen, don't send any. How do you make up for that? How do you make an amends for something like that? Well, in my case, I stayed sober 12 years and got a dozen. I did it the old-fashioned way. I earned it. And every year on my AA birthday, I get a rose for every year. And Bose had to start taking out a loan. <laughs> oh, me. But um, I went to this treatment center, and it was for 28 days. That's, they said that's what it was for. They, they said in the, right up in the yellow pages in the telephone book, 28-day treatment program. I stayed 38 days. I don't understand that. I wanted to stay 45, and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> and uh, I go over to this treatment center, and let me tell you what I found at that treatment center. I found ladies that had done the same thing I'd done. I thought I'd done a lot of terrible things to my family, but there was always one who did a little more. 
And I listened and I heard things at that treatment center that will be with me for the rest of my life. And I formed friendships there with some people that will forever be in my life. And I learned things there that will take me through the rest of my life that nobody will ever take away from me. And I thank God for that treatment center. And they had something up there for a week called Family Week. Bo refers to it as Hell Week. I mean, that's his opinion. I don't really know. But it was Family Week. And uh, I don't remember anything about that week other than one particular session when we're sitting in there and the counselor asked Mike, what do you want to do with your mom? If you could do anything in the world with your mom, what would you do? And Mike looked at this counselor and he said, well, I don't want another mother. I just want this one to where she doesn't drink anymore. He didn't want another mother. Then the counselor went to Cece, who's 13 years old, and you know, should be in somebody's swimming pool somewhere than getting out for a hot dog or a hamburger. She shouldn't be up at a treatment center for her mother's alcoholism. And this counselor says, Cece, what do you want to do with your mom? And she said, well... I don't know, but I'm tired of being the mom. I want to be somebody's little girl. I want to be tucked in bed at night instead of me having to tuck my drunk mother. I don't load the dishwasher right. I don't fold clothes right. I don't do anything right. And I want to be somebody's little girl. And the counselor went to Bo and said, Bo, what do you want to do with your wife? He said, I don't know. But we're 18 and a half years into a marriage that's not going to make it to number 19. I love her, but I can't live with her. And I thought, I didn't think I was hurting anybody but me. I just didn't think I was hurting anybody but me. I drank in my kitchen alone every night, and I just couldn't be hurting that many people. And so I stayed the 38 days in uh When I got out, they told me that I had to be in an AA meeting within five hours. You know, I did a lot of things that they suggested, and bless their hearts, it's all turned out. Everything they've suggested has turned out. They told me that I needed to go to the Bessemer group, that it was an old group. It had a lot of good sobriety. It had a lot of women in there that had been through things I had been through. And I went to the Bessemer group. And by far, it's been one of the best decisions I've made in my recovery. We all met there in the parking lot at the Bessemer Group, and then we traveled 35 miles down the road to the University of Alabama campus where there was an AA Al-Anon anniversary on the campus of the University of Alabama. Mike and Sissy went with us, and we had a ball on the way down. I had never seen my children like that in many, many years. I had never been in the car with my two children and my husband in many, many years. We didn't do things together anymore. We went down to this anniversary and all the way down there, you know, I had been, I knew what AA meetings were. I knew what AA speaker meetings were because they came up and someone would come up to the lodge and speak to us uh, a couple of times a week. So I knew about that. But all the way down there, I kept thinking, you know, if they have anything like, if they have a guy that's in this in this group that Bo's going to be going into, Al-Anon, I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear a man talk about his pain. And then, God, if you could, if you kind of do this for me, I'd like to hear a woman who's where I am, who's been where I've been. And we get down to this anniversary and there's 500 of y'all. 
hugging and kissing with name tags on. I wanted to know why mine was red and Bo's was blue. They told me. They had all these kids running around all over the place. And my son said, man, are those little alcoholics? And some lady said, no, they're allotines. You'll know what allotine is. And, uh, and so we, we went down and, and, uh, and there were an awful lot of people there who, who came up and said, I've heard about you. And I'm thinking, where did you hear about me? Did everybody know about Shirley? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. You know, they got started and they had the Al-Anon program first. And uh, they, everybody got up on the podium, the platform like this. And, and uh, I punched Bo and I said, they're all men up there. They had a male Al-Anon speaker for us. I couldn't tell you his name. I couldn't tell you where he's from. I couldn't tell you anything about him. And I thought, you know, Shirley, you asked God to send a mail, and you didn't even listen. And then we had something to eat. We had the meal, and then they started that other program, that AA program. And everybody up on the platform was lady or ladies. And that lady got up that was going to speak, and she said her name. She said she was an alcoholic. And Mike looked at Sissy, and Sissy looked at Bo and said, Huh, there's two of them in this world, her and our mother. And we laughed. We laughed. We hadn't laughed in years. We had not laughed in years. And we got home from that anniversary that night, and I had not been home in 38 days. And my children were worried because I hadn't had any chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) So they bought a two-pound bag of chocolate chip cookies, and we had a gallon of milk. And the four of us sat in the den floor in our home on 28th Avenue with the front door open and the drapes opened. And we sat there, and we talked about what we saw with you people that night. We remembered the hugs that you gave us. We remembered the kisses that you gave us. You kept telling us to keep coming back. It'll get better. And you don't ever have to be alone again. And that night, in my den floor, on, on, in my home on 28th Avenue in Hueytown, the four of us made a commitment to each other that we were going to give this thing our best shot. We didn't know where we were going to go with this. We didn't know what we were going to do. We were going to follow you. But we wanted what you had. And if you don't think that you're giving any indication to anybody about this program, you better watch it. Because I lived on the fellowship of this program for a while. Because I didn't have, I couldn't do anything else but enjoy the fellowship. And nobody ran me off. Nobody ran me off. Well, we asked the kids to go to Altine for four weeks, one meeting a week. Where was the strongest and oldest Altine group in the state of Alabama in 1982? Bessemer. My children started to Alateen that next month, next Tuesday night, and after four weeks, we sat them down and we talked to them. And Mike said, Mom, I tell you what, it's just not for me. But I'll go when you get those little round things, because they have cake. <laughs> and any time you and Dad go to those meetings at the beach, I'll go with you to the beach. But, Mom, I just don't think it's for me. You see, Mike had a motorcycle, and he did some chasing. And we really believe he did some catching. <laughs> but Mike always showed up at every time I got a chip. Every time I got a chip. Cece came to us and she said, I found my place. I'm home. She fell for Alateen, hook, line, and sinker. God, that group saved her life. Alateen saved our little girl's life. 
Little did I know that when I was two, two years sober, my little girl shared in one of her talks that she had contemplated suicide the summer I got sober. And I had no idea. I had no idea. And the year before I got sober, my son flunked that entire year in junior high. And it was because he never could study. There was never any atmosphere for him to study at home. And so he got on his motorcycle and he left. Well, Sissy stayed in Alateen till she was 20. Then it was time for her to come on into Al-Anon. And you know, when she first started out on this journey, I remember her saying, there's two things I'd like to do in my life. And I said, what? She said, I want to stay in Alateen until it's time for me to go into Al-Anon. And I want to be an Alateen sponsor. And she's done them both. That little girl right now in Bossier City, Louisiana, has 17 and a half years of 12-step recovery. Alateen and Al-Anon, and that ain't bad for 30 years of age. That's not bad. In fact, when she went to college, she came back to the Bessemer Group every Tuesday night for two years and sponsored the group that she grew up in, giving back what's been so freely given to us. Well... You know, I had a hard time that year that Mike flunked because that Tuesday morning that they went back to school after I got home from treatment, he had to start all over with that year. And he'd call me that, that, that week from school and he'd say, Mom, are you okay? And I'd say, Mike, I'm, I'm fine. What are you doing? What are you doing calling me? And he said, well, you just won't believe who's sitting next to me in history. Now, if I'd gone up to the next grade, I'd have missed her. And then he'd call me again, and he'd say, you will not believe this girl that sits next to me, an English mother. I'd have missed my chance if I'd have been in that other grade. <laughs> and I told him one day, I said, it seems to me that you're more grateful to be in that grade. He said, well, I really am. I really am. I would have missed all this and said, I'm going to graduate one of these years anyway, so what the heck? And, uh, and so he came home one afternoon from school, and he, he said, they've sent out the notices about the prom. And he said, yeah, I've been thinking. By the time you rent a tux and you pay for flowers and you go out to dinner and you, and you pay for the pictures and, and then you go out for breakfast and, and you get the gas in your car and you clean it up. Mother, I, just, I really just don't think I can afford it. And I said, well, Mike, I'll pay for it. He said, I'll go. <laughs> so he went. He had a ball. Absolutely had a ball. Danced, I think, with every girl there. Had a ball. In fact, he came to me and Bo the week before the prom and he said, I need to learn how to dance. I said, it's real easy. You just get up there and you just move. Your feet don't have to move. You just get up there and you move. And when he came home from the prom, he said, man, I, I was better than any of them. And I said, well, that's all you got to do is just go to the music. And uh, he had a ball. Well, then the next month he graduated from high school, a year later than he was supposed to, a year later. But oh, he was so excited. He was going to Florida for two weeks. And we had this big party and people were coming out the windows. We had so many people. I walked past the front porch and on the front step were five cans of beer. And Mike had already said to me, Mother, I need to talk to you for two minutes in my bedroom. And I thought, you know, he's going to hit me up for another loan. I know it, and that's okay. And then one other time he said, you know, Mom, I really do need to talk to you now in my bedroom for just two minutes. And so I finally said, well, come on, let's go. And as we were walking past the front door, I said, where, where did these five cans of beer come from? He said, well, there are a couple of my buddies here, several of my buddies here, that wanted to come to my graduation party. And I told them we didn't allow alcohol in our home anymore. 
that they could come to the party and leave it outside on the step, and then when they leave, they can pick it back up. It won't be a problem, Mother. They'll pick it up when they leave, I promise you. And there's one guy here that I told if he didn't behave, you'd take away his car keys. And I said, you didn't. He said, yeah, I did. So back to Mike's bedroom we go, and we walk in, and he's trying to fiddle to figure out how to get that white gown on. And, and he's got his cap in his hand, and he says, sit down on the bed, Mom. And I said, must be serious. And he goes over and closes the door. And he said, it is serious. Have a seat right there on my bed. And I sit down, and he said, Mother, there's three things I'd like to tell you. I said, okay. Number one, I'd like to thank you for being sober. He said, I really would like to thank you for being sober. I wouldn't be having this party right now. I doubt if I'd even be graduating. And I thought, God, the promise is in the big book. Man, they can just come back to you in so many different ways. He said, number two, for a long time we've had a glass wall up between us because you blame yourself for this year I flunked. And I said, yeah, Mike, if I hadn't been drinking so much and if I had presented enough of a home environment that you could have studied, you'd have passed. He said, Mom, Sissy made the honor roll. Sissy made the honor roll. And he said, when you look at me and you tell me that you love me, I want you to look at me in the eyes and you don't do that anymore. And I believe it's got something to do with this glass wall. And I said, well, I just can't look at you without thinking about that year. And he said, Mom, listen, in an hour I'm graduating. When I get that diploma, it won't matter whether it's a year or two years or five years. I have my diploma. But he said, when you look at me and you tell me that you love me, I want you to look at me in the eyes. And I said, I'm going to try. So I started to get up. He said, wait a minute. I said three things. I said, well, let me tell you one thing. You're going to have to go a long way to come up with something that's going to beat these first two. And he said, oh, I've got it. No problem. He said, number three is this mom. No matter how many little girls I date. You'll always be my number one girl. And I thought, how did I get here from where I came? And all I wanted to do was quit drinking. That's all I wanted to do. And I stood up and I went over and I put my arms around Mike and he put his arms around me and that glass wall went down and it never came back up. It was gone. It was gone. We went on to the graduation, came back to the house and had a party. He left for his two weeks in Florida, and nothing else was ever said about the glass wall because it was gone. The next year, Sissy graduated, and I kept waiting. We had the same party. I didn't see beer on the front step, but I kept waiting for her to call me into her bedroom. <laughs> I just knew it was going to happen. It was, it was due me, okay? She never called me into her bedroom. I was so disappointed. I told Bo when we got home from graduation, I said, I kept I kept thinking she was just going to call me, and we were going to have this little talk and and take care of it. And both said, well, what does she need to take care of? And then I remembered back seven months into my sobriety. She came in from school one day, and she said, my sponsor in Alateen says, I've got to get all the garbage out, Mother, before I start getting better. And that means that I need to sit down with you and tell you all the things that you did to me while you were drunk and in blackouts. And, Mom, I don't want to, but I want to get better. Please let me get better. And so seven months into my sobriety, we sat Indian-legged on her bed. 
her canopy bed in her bedroom with the door closed. And she read out the things from a legal pad of all the things I had done to her when I was drinking and in blackouts. She had everything written down. And when she got through, she folded the pages back over and she said, Mother, that's everything. And I looked at her and I said, Sissy, I don't know what in the world to say to you, honey, except I am so sorry. And she said, that's all you have to say. It'll never be brought up again. It's never been mentioned since. Never been mentioned since. Oh, what a journey Bo and I have had. Oh, what a journey we've had with these two children. Mike didn't want to go to college, but Sissy did. So we got her ready to go to college. And after her first year, we were all going to go on something that usually alcoholics don't take, and that's vacations. But we were going to go on the Amtrak that particular summer after Sissy's first year to Washington, D.C. for a week. And we had done nothing but plan this for, for months and months and months. And Mike came to me and his dad right before time for Sissy to come home after that first year. And he said, can I move her back home? And I said, well, that's kind of crazy. Your dad and I can rent a U-Haul truck and go down and make one trip, bring everything to the house because she'll be moving right back out in August. He said, but you don't understand. I got four buddies with pickup trucks, and we want to go down and move Sissy home. The only thing you'll have to do is provide lunch. I said, I can do that. <laughs> so Mike and his four buddies in pickup trucks, they drive 40 miles to Montevallo, and they start moving Sissy home. And it was so neat, bringing all this stuff. And as they brought it into the house, they put it right in the living room, no further, in the living room. In fact, we had to make a little path from the living room door to the hall. And I said to Mike, don't you think we need to move some of this stuff into the different bedrooms or out on the patio? And he said, well, you said she was moving out in August. I'd just leave it right here. I'm going to have to pick it up again in August and take it back. And I looked at him and I said, Mike, I just can't believe that a brother would want to do something like that for his sister. And he said, oh, Mom, get a clue. Me and my buddies are going down there and checking out all the girls on our dorm floor. So he moved her home, Mother's Day weekend of 1988, and little did we know that May the 17th of 1988, Mike would be killed instantly by a drunk driver. And I'd been in this program almost six years, and I had done all the things that had been suggested to me. I got a sponsor. I made these amends to those kids, every single one of them. And when those three policemen were standing there at that door at 1230 that night, the only thing I could think of was, why me, God? Why me? What part of this program did I not do to the best of my ability, God? You tell me what I did wrong. You show me what I missed. But please, you don't understand. I have to have Mike. He's the sunshine of my life. There could just never be another little fellow like that one. You know, he was the one who said, I just want my mother to not drink anymore. You don't pay me for anything in the back, Mom. Just stay sober today. And when within 45 minutes, AA and Al-Anon was in our home. And you didn't leave. For 72 hours, you did not leave. The girls at my group, at my group in Bessemer, made a list of three-hour shifts for 72 hours. And every three hours, I had a different girl with me. Their only instructions from my sponsor was, take her to the ladies' room and wash her face, get her to drink a sip of milk out of a Dixie cup or a cracker with a little bit of cheese on it. Do not make her sit down and eat a meal. She can't do that. If she lays down across the bed, you lay down across the bed with her, but you do not let her out of your sight 
while you're there for three hours. And I'm here to tell you that I'd have never made it. I'd have never made it. Because you see, my husband was in the bedroom loading the shotgun to go kill a drunk driver. And it was his sponsor who said, Bo, you can't do this. Sissy and Shirley need you. God, what would we have done without y'all? Where would we be right now without y'all? When I didn't want to go to a meeting, someone was there saying, get in the car. Just like it was when I got sober. And someone would come by the house and toot the horn and say, get in the car. For the first two years, we thought the first step was get in the car. And now you're doing this to us again. You're not calling. You're saying when we pull up in the driveway and toot the horn, you get in the car. We're taking you to a meeting. And that's what you've done. It's been 11 years. It has been 11 years since Mike died. And I'm here to tell you there has not been one moment when I hadn't thought about him. There has not been one Christmas when I didn't want to go with Christmas again. There's not been any time since we've lost Mike that I hadn't missed him. Because I don't think you're supposed to get over something like that. I don't think you're supposed to get better at getting over a death. I think you're supposed to be able to handle it a little better. But you don't get over it. You don't get over it. Sissy came to me at the funeral and she said, Brother, I used to lay awake in bed at night when you were drinking. And I'd say, God, let her die in her sleep. Just let her die in her sleep. And then you'd take that money out of my piggy bank and you'd go buy another bottle of wine and I'd say, God, let her forget where we live. But Sissy came over to me and she put my face in her hands and she said, Mother, let me tell you something. You will make this. You will make it through this. My daddy and I will make sure you make it through this. Do you understand? And so the three of us have had a commitment that two can be down at one time, but not all three. She made a decision to go back to college, and she didn't want to, but she said, I feel like I need to do that for Mike. And it was real tough loading up all that stuff in that living room. Because you see, Mike had promised me that he would take it back. And she went back to cl- went back to school, and she went to class enough that they gave her a degree. They gave her a degree. And I had asked her many, many years before, when she wanted to go to college, I said, what do you want to do? When you, what do you want to be? What do you want to study? And she said, well, Mom, I want to be an alcohol and drug counselor. And I want to work with the families. And my, my counselors at school have told me that I have all of the on-the-job training. I just need the book knowledge. And so when she got her degree, she was able to be an alcohol and drug counselor. And I'll tell you something, I wouldn't want to be one of her patients. I wouldn't want to be one of her clients. Because it's tough enough being her mother. I'm here to tell you. She finished college, and when she did, she moved back home. And that tickled me and Bo to death, because we could smother her once more. And she allows that. She allows that. And she was 25 years old, and uh, she came to me and her dad, and she said, Do you think there's a man for me in God's eyes? And I said, Sure I do. And she said, Well, Mother, all my friends are getting married and having babies, and getting divorced and getting married and having babies. And she said, and I haven't experienced any of that. And she would go out on these dates with fellas. And finally, I gave her a roll of quarters one night because I said, you call us so much to come pick you up. Just stick this in your purse. You don't have to worry about having a quarter. And um, she never, whoever she'd go out with somebody, they'd start drinking, and she'd pick up the phone and call us to come pick her up. And uh, 
And so I said, sure, Susie, there's a man for you somewhere. God's just not through with him. And that was true. God and Mike were still working on Bob. (laughs) And so she had an opportunity to go out on a blind date, you might say, to a basketball tournament with Bob. And when she started to leave the house, I said to her, now, Sissy, you don't kiss him goodnight when he walks you to the door. She said, Mom, that might have worked for you in 1959, but it ain't going to fly in this year. And I said, well, try it, honey. He's already got your phone number. Try it. And so we, Bo and I wait around, you know, for her to get home the tournament. And as soon as the headlights pull in the driveway, I go run, get in bed. And she puts her key in the front door, and I heard her giggle or, or laugh or do something. And about that time, she comes to the bedroom, and she slides right up between me and her dad. And she said, hey, Mom, is it possible to fall in love on the first date? I said, Bo, get up. we got to make the coffee. <laughs> and Sissy and Bob started dating. And let me tell you how Bob came into Sissy's life. He wasn't writing a white knight. He was writing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had five years of sobriety. Can you believe that? And I'm here today to thank AA for getting my son-in-law ready for us. He did a beautiful job. You and God did a beautiful job. Well, Cece and Bob really got serious and they decided they wanted to get married, so they came to me and Bo and they said, we want to get married in the same church you married. If it worked for y'all, it'll work for us. And the counselor that I had in treatment, you remember I told you that I had friendships that would be for, with me forever. One of them was with our counselor, our family counselor named Howard, who happens to be an ordained minister. So Howard comes to the Baptist church in Hueytown, Alabama, to perform a marriage wearing a black Catholic robe, doing a Methodist wedding ceremony in a Baptist church. And we think they've got a chance. We opened this wedding with a serenity prayer. We lit a candle in memory of Mike, because Mike will always be a part of our lives. He's just in another room. Bob came along with two children. He'd been married before. So we have Will and Kale in our lives. We are instant grandparents without any diapers. And today, Will is nine years old, and Kale is 12, and we love them dearly. Uh, at the end of this wedding ceremony, we closed it with everyone standing and saying the Lord's Prayer. And Bo just got highly mad at me because I wouldn't let him pass the basket. <laughs> but he's learning to get over that. Uh, Bob and Sissy are a neat couple to watch. Bob's 12 years older than Sissy, and, uh, and they're just amazing to watch. We had that big house in Hueytown, and when they married, it seemed like everybody went to their place. No one came to our house anymore. So we had a little meeting one Sunday afternoon, and we decided we would sell the great big house with a swimming pool and move out into the woods a little bit, out into the country, and get a one-level home. Less upkeep, and since Bo and I are getting on up older. Bob and Sissy said to us, we don't have a problem with that at all, as long as you take us with you. So we sold the house, and we happened to sell this house to a young man that my husband had made a 12-step call on right after Mike died. And they came through the house one time and bought it. And this little boy looked at me and he put his arms around me. He said, I can feel the love in this house. He said, I can feel it. And I want to buy your home. And it was real funny. He wanted us to move out. After he bought it, he wanted us to move out. And so we move out and we find two acres of land between Bessemer and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And where the dirt road starts and the pavement ends is where you turn left up into our driveway. And so we took this two acres of land and we put Bob and Sissy a new home on one third of it. 
And then we used the same driveway and went to the very top of the hill and we put Bo and Shirley a new home on it. And Bob doesn't mind me saying this, but his last name is Country. And we have this big sign that says, Templin Country. Those who understand, it's okay. Those who don't understand, I'm sorry. But it's now called Templin Country. And we love it out there in the woods. We really do. We have no neighbors. We have deer. We have two little beagle puppies. And life today is, is great. Except for June the 12th of this year. Except for June the 12th. Bo and I are out of town. And we are summoned by a telephone call that our daughter's headaches have changed. And they've done an MRI. And they have discovered an aneurysm on the stem of her brain. And Bo and I get in the van to drive home a little over three hours. And as we get in the van, it starts raining. And the further we get closer we get home, the harder it's raining. And I'm mad at God. And Bo's mad at God. And we're riding down this highway. And we're both saying, God, you've got her little boy. You've got to leave this little girl. She's never been sick a day in her life. She's so beautiful. We didn't know what to do. We came right straight home. We wouldn't let Cece out of her sight. We just wouldn't let her out of her sight. We went with her to the doctor. We found an excellent doctor who believed that he was not God. He was only God's hands. And he believed in the power of prayer. It says so in his waiting room that he believed in the power of prayer. And if you feel uncomfortable with this, go find another doctor. They operated on our little girl on June the 22nd, and they shaved her head. And that was so dramatic to watch your little girl with this beautiful brown hair be shaved. And this scar all the way across her head. And you're thinking when you're standing there saying the serenity prayer, God, she's in your hands. You've got to give her back to us. They went in there and they clipped off that aneurysm. They stitched her up. And she's done beautifully. God, she's done beautifully. She's never once this whole time ever complained. She's never once ever felt sorry for herself. She has never once ever asked God, why me? It's been her mom and dad. And we've been there with her through this the whole time. She wrote us a note after she'd been home for a little while. And she said, Mom and Dad, I don't know what in the world I would have done without you. She said, I don't know what I would have done without AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen in my life. And today, this morning, she's in Louisiana sharing her experience, strength, and hope. They have the two children with them. They took the two little ones with them this weekend because they've never been out of the state of Alabama. And we're going to go home early tomorrow because we want to see them before they have to go home. But God is good today. It really is good. And one thing that came out of this surgery that that is really hard for me to understand, but it's been a blessing throughout the whole deal, is that today she doesn't have headaches. Today she doesn't have headaches. God has put four hunks in my life. The first hunk is that guy who drove me here this weekend. My husband, my best friend, my lover. He's everything that I've ever wanted in my life all rolled up into one. And I love growing old with him. I really do. The second hunk in my life is that little fellow who lives up in heaven now named Mike. 
And man, he would have been just as fine a daddy and just as fine a husband because he was truly a chip off the old block. The third hunk in my life is that young man who came along and swept my daughter off her feet. And his sobriety is number one in his life. Bob takes care of his sobriety because he too knows that without your sobriety, you're nothing. And he brought along those two precious grandchildren that call me Granny and Papa Bo. And it just don't get much better than that. We do want one of those from scratch. One of those grandchildren from scratch. But we'll take these two instant ones just fine. The fourth hunk in my life is a young man who recorded a song. And I'm going to close with one verse of that song. His name is Ronnie Millsap. And you take this one verse and it will sum up Shirley Templin without saying another word. It goes like this. What a difference you made in my life. What a difference you made in my life. You're my sunshine day and night. Oh, what a difference you made in my life. And that's my AA. Thank you and I love you.